Well, over the last two weeks, we've embarked on this journey through God's unfolding story here in the pages of his word. And our prayer and purpose in this sermon series and guiding you as a church and us as a church through this journey is so that each and every one of us might be equipped to study the word more faithfully by ourselves, but also to share the word more fervently with the world around us. And so we want to be equipped by the word to share the word because this, what we hold in our laps this morning, is our family story. What takes place in these very pages, though thousands of years removed from us today, or what has led to us being here today, holding this book in our laps, experiencing the grace of God and salvation. And as such, we ought to have a, a yearning to learn this family story well and relay it to others so that they too might experience the grace of God through it and come to find themselves within this story. And so we've been flying high over the last couple weeks, 30,000 foot view above these pages, getting a quick and small glimpse of what God is doing in this redemptive plan of history. And so our prayer is that these sermons are fueling your daily study of this book. They're fueling your daily study to accurately see this book as one story about one God saving one people through one Savior. So you have that booklet that we've handed out. I'm sure you've been taking notes. We also have some other resources that I am going to give out at the end uh, of our service today. Uh, these are resources that I know some of you want right away, but we're going to wait to the very end. Uh, the first being, one for a, ch a child, David and the Very Big Giant. And I know a parent actually wants this to help uh, watch or help the kids stay attentive this morning, but we're going to wait until the very end, okay? So the first one that comes up, I know all the kids are going to run up at the very end of the service, but this is a great, great resource that helps us see the bigger story. We also have this one for a little bit older, The Songs of a Warrior, a story of David. Uh, and so this one is available for, let's say, elementary to, you could say high school if you want. Uh, and then two other books, the, actually it's the same book, but I have two copies. The Big Story, How the Bible Makes Sense Out of Life, another great resource for you. So we're, we're using these resources, we're using what you have in front of you to equip you to study the word by yourself, but then also to share it with others. And this morning we find ourselves touching down here in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in what might be one of the most familiar stories in this entire grand narrative of scripture. As a matter of fact, many of us grew up in Sunday school learning this story, even singing a song over and over and over and over again. We love to reenact this, this story. But even if you didn't grow up in church, and maybe this is your first time gathering with the church on a Sunday morning, you've likely heard of this story before. For instance, if you're a sports fan, you've probably heard various analysts allude to this story. David versus Goliath. And really, who doesn't love a supreme underdog story like David and Goliath, right? He, this underdog, stands up against this massive Hulk-like figure who seems to be a shoe-in, has all the accolades, the trophies and the trophy case, and yet there's just something about rooting for that underdog who's not supposed to win, 
Well, the truth is, it's rather unfortunate that this story here in 1 Samuel 17 has become the prototypical underdog story because to see the story as such is really to totally miss the point. For what we'll find here as we dig into this passage this morning is that this story is not at all about the little guy mustering up enough strength to overcome the big guy, but rather a story about how God fights for his people and delivers them for his glory. How it is God who fights for his people and delivers them for his glory. You see, the books of 1 Samuel all the way through to 2 Chronicles continue to tell this story family of Abraham and his children, now a nation called Israel. And what we find within these books is the rise and fall of many of its kings. We left off last week, if you remember, at the conclusion of the book of Ruth, where we read a genealogy. You know what a genealogy is, right? It's that part where you usually skip over uh, in Scripture. It's so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and we can't pronounce all the names, and so we just start skimming over. But those are important parts of the story. I mean, you wouldn't want to be skipped over in your family tree or in your family story, would you? These individuals are part of our family story. And you remember the name that we read at the very end of the book of Ruth? David. David. Well, now, for those of you who are just joining us this morning for the first time and you've missed those first two weeks of the story, let me catch you up real quick. And for the children that are here this morning for our Family Sunday from Calvary Kids Ministry, you'll want to listen in closely to make sure I get the story right. I know you know the story well. But what happened so far within our family story is that it's begun with a word. Just a word. God's word. And everything came into existence. And yet the humans God made in his image were tempted by another word, a lie. A lie to believe that not everything that God created was very good, but that there was actually something out there that was better for them. And so they rebelled against God and his word. They rebelled against God and then everything started to fall apart. Everything went from good to bad. And yet God made a promise that one day there would be one who would come who would make all things right. All things very right. One who would be the child of a woman and one who would crush the head of a scaly serpent who lied to that woman. From Genesis 3 then on, we've seen that there has been this longing in the hearts of all mankind for this one who would come to rescue us from the very bad. And yet, we've also seen that mankind is still looking for something better outside of God's good, right, and perfect plan. The problem is, each time mankind thinks they've found something better or have a better plan, it ends up failing. And like all normal children, when the plan doesn't work, when they don't get their way, they begin to complain and whine. Now, of course, I'm not talking about you children here this morning. You're not normal. I know you don't whine and complain, right? Right? And so, this story that we've heard so far has been one of God making promises. His children excited about these promises, but then they turn away 
from God's good and perfect plan. So as we step here into 1 Samuel 17, that's the setting. God's people, the children of Abraham, the Israelites, have turned away from God's plan and find themselves in a whole heap of trouble. Specifically right here in this chapter, in a battle against a giant who's fighting for their strongest enemy. Now, I've never been in a battle like the one we read here today. I've had some pretty intense battles around chutes and ladders and things like that, but that no way compares to the battle here. Even so, I think some of us, most of us, can relate in some way to the feelings of dismay and fear that we see from the Israelites in this story. Oh, certainly not to the same level of intensity, but we've all had those moments when we feel like we're at our wit's end, haven't we? We have no idea how we are going to pay the bills the next month or what, diagnosis will, what that diagnosis will mean for the rest of our life. And while each of us have these experiences to varying degrees of dismay and fear, the reality is we all have this familiar feeling of hopelessness. Our fallen human experience is filled with temptation and pressures that show no respect. And so we feel defeated, overwhelmed, not strong enough to endure the fight. But then on the flip side, we never want others to know that about us. And we, we want to hide that because our, our pride says we have it all together and we can handle it, right? We want to be seen as fearless and courageous, not weak and frail. Well, that's where this nation of Israel finds themselves this morning. There, standing across the valley of Elah, is a giant like none other, Goliath, who's just, not just terrorizing them with his incredible size, but he's also taunting them. He's taunting them with his words day after day. I mean, 40 days, verse 16 tells us, have gone by, and they, the Israelites, are just letting him go on and on. Why? Well, because they're overwhelmed with this enemy. They're overwhelmed with his size. They're standing before them as this giant. I mean, the fight hasn't even started, and they've already acted defeated. But as we read this story, we start to ask this question, what's going to happen? What will they end up doing? Or maybe even more pointedly, we should be asking, what will Saul, the king, who's supposed to accept the challenge on behalf of the Israelites, what, what's he going to do here? Will he depend on himself or will he depend on God? You see, throughout this entire section of scripture, there's this nagging question that continues to be raised as the storyline unfolds. And it's this question regarding who is truly qualified to be the king of Israel. Who will it be? Who is it? For the Israelites and their rebellion against God and his good and right perfect plan have asked for a king so that they can be more like the other nations around them. God has granted their request, saying to them, as recorded for us in chapter 8 and verse 9, obey the voice of the people, and he says this to Samuel, and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, 
forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Well, what happens next is, let's just say, not the brightest spot in our family story, specifically Israel's history. It's not exactly how you would want to go about coming up with a king for a nation, especially one that's going to face some battles like the Israelites are facing. In fact, the way Israel goes about choosing their king looks far more like how a high school prom king is chosen. We read about it in chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath. Again, you see why genealogies are so fun to read. Son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Wow. Those are some amazing credentials to be a king, aren't they? Handsome and tall. As you might guess, it soon becomes very evident that Saul, no matter how tall, dark, and handsome he is, is not the right king for Israel. Oh, he'll decisively win some of the battles, but the next move, he's sacrificing unlawfully, making rash vows, sparing pagan kings, and blatant disobedience to God's command. In other words, Israel's trial run on this king thing isn't working at all. In fact, in chapter 15, we hear God say, I regret that I have made Saul king. This is proof that this king thing is pretty bad mistake. But God's not done with his people. And actually, God wasn't the one making the mistake at all. Again, God in his mercy and grace is revealing his unfolding story and it's his people who continue to push again. His mercy is displayed when he selects for himself the king, a king. While man was looking around on the outward appearance, seeing if they're tall, dark, and handsome, God's looking at the heart. And so in chapter 16, verse 13, we're introduced to this young man named David. And we're introduced to him as Samuel anoints him with oil and the spirit of the Lord, the scripture tells us, rushes on him. And so it's at this point that we start gaining some hope for the people of Israel. Maybe this young king, David, will make a difference. For this is God's king that he himself is appointing. And while his credentials aren't as humanly impressive as Saul's are, when the spirit of the Lord rushes upon someone, let's just say, you should probably get on that bandwagon. This is the background to what we have here in chapter 17. Saul is rejected, but God has chosen David. And yet, as we've just read, Saul's still the king. And so, where do we find Saul in this story? Well, tall, dark, and handsome isn't working for him. He's hiding out in his tent. But notice here in this story, what we've just read, what it then says about Goliath. Maybe we get a glimpse into why Saul is hiding out, at least humanly speaking. But look at verses 4 and 7. 4 through 7 again. Again, there's this champion named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span, had a helmet of bronze in his head and his armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. These verses say 
little about physical attributes, except for he's huge, over nine foot six, but they say a little bit more about what he is wearing. Pastor Josh Redberg, who I think some of you know, in his devotional commentary on 1 Samuel writes, the author of 1 Samuel makes a subtle point by including Goliath's height. Here is the third character in 1 Samuel described as tall. The first was King Saul, the second was David's oldest brother, Eliab, and now we have Goliath, the tallest of them all. All three were at this battleground, but neither the first nor the second was tall enough to face Goliath. Even though Saul and Eli towered over other people, they ran into a warrior that towered over them. No one thought Goliath could be beaten. They knew this battle was too big for them to fight, and so we get a glimpse into maybe why Saul even though as tall as he is, is a little afraid of Goliath. The reality is, Israel and Saul find this enemy that's far too big, far too strong for them. Humanly speaking, this guy is unbeatable. But there's also something else in this account of what Goliath is wearing that's interesting. Notice that the author pays unusual attention to Goliath's scale-like armor. In fact, in the Hebrew, it literally says he's wearing scales. Thus, Goliath in this story is being presented as a snake. Hmm. I think we've heard about a snake before in the story, haven't we? That may be interesting as we continue on. Here is one that's, humanly speaking, unbeatable in size and strength, dressed like a serpent, taunting the people of God. His jeers further emphasize that he's proud in his size. Look down at verses 8 and 9. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you're not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down for me. Is he, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I mean, at this point, he's taunting. You would imagine some guy in this battlefield has an ego that says, I'm not going to allow that anymore. I'm going to go fight for our people. Yet, we don't see that. Where's Saul? Where are the other Israelites? They're pulling back in fear. They're, let's just say it, they're cowards. The contrast cannot be more obvious here between the enemy, Goliath, and the cowards, the Israelites. And yet in verse 12, which we haven't read yet, the tone of the story changes. This young man we're introduced to back in chapter 16, the one who was anointed king and on whom the Spirit of the Lord rushed, he, David, steps into the scene and says, Now David was the son of Ephraim of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And so David is coming to the battle. He's coming to bring some things for his brothers. Look at verse 17. Jesse said to David's son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. The story continues. David goes to the battlefield, brings the stuff, and of course, all, like all older brothers, what are you doing here? Why do you have to show up? And they're trying to push him away. Then, look at verse 19. Saul, they, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Ephah. That's where they're at. David rose early, left the sheep, come to this battlefield. He left the things in charge, and he hears this taunting coming to pass. He hears this 
taunts from Goliath. And again, like a younger brother, what's going on? Hey, why aren't you out there? Why aren't you taking care of this battle? Look at verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, this is the little guy. He sounds very bold in this moment, doesn't he? Very bold. I don't know about you, but it's almost too bold for me. I mean, this takes some serious guts, doesn't it? To not only walk into the king and his tent, past all the other Israelite armies, your brothers, and then to get to this giant. I mean, who is this kid? But listen on, verse 33. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your, your, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and then there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb from the flock. He's trying to help Saul see that, okay, maybe I've got a little bit of something, but notice verse 37. Here's the main point of David's speech before King Saul. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, in this speech before King Saul, David is not having his chest puffed out, and I'm, I'm big stuff. I've killed a lion, killed a bear. Look at me. I can take on a Goliath. No, he says, the Lord who delivered me. So Saul says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. I do wonder, as I step into the story, if there's maybe a little sarcasm in Saul's voice there. Uh, like, okay. All right, you go at it, little guy. We'll see what happens. I mean, again, Saul's track record hasn't really been one of trusting God all that much. So the story continues. David goes out to face Goliath. Must have been eating his Wheaties that morning or maybe he stayed at Holiday Inn Express the night before. I mean, that's a bold move. David's highly unlikely to fight this Goliath and win. He's just a shepherd boy but as the story continues, we see what happens. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and comes near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Again, taunting. He knows he can just snap this little guy like a twig. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the head now give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Amen. You see, David knows who's on his side. 
David knows who Goliath is taunting in this moment. He knows Goliath is not just taunting Saul, not just taunting Israel. He is disdaining God. I come to you, David says, in the name of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Saba, mighty warrior, and that is all David needs. He doesn't need the armor, doesn't need the latest weapons of war, the newest technology. He doesn't even mention here that he has a slingshot in this epic battle speech. Instead, he declares with an unwavering courage that it is God who fights for his people, and he's the one who will deliver them. You see, what David understood in this moment when he comes to this battlefield and he hears Goliath taunting God's people was that it wasn't just Saul or Israelite's reputation on the line, nor was it his reputation on the line. It was the living God's reputation that was at stake. The ultimate problem with Saul, with Saul and the ultimate problem with Israel, cowering, hiding away from Goliath, is that in that moment they weren't trusting God. And again, that's what we find from 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Chronicles over and over and over again. These kings who should be mighty leading forward are not trusting God's perfect plan. Again, this wasn't a new situation though. We've seen it in the past couple weeks. The Israelites have experienced some pretty sizable foes. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, walls of Jericho. The list could go on and on. And each time, despite Their unusual distrust, what have we seen? We've seen God fight for his people and deliver them for his glory. For God will not be mocked. He will not allow his name to be defamed. His purpose remains as we saw there in verse 46 and 47, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord. And so it's here in this portion of our story that the faithful, humble, and courageous faith of a shepherd boy shines through and God does it again. For as the story continues in verse 49, David puts his hand in his bag and takes out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Now, again, as we read this story, this is not just some amazing strength from a little guy. Somehow he swung it around and around and around and around enough. No, this is God fighting for his people. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head With it. When the Philistines saw this, their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. They pursued them all the way and plundered their camp. David takes the head of the Philistine, brings it into Jerusalem, put his armor in his tent. Oh, this is an amazing story. Again, one that we've grown up with, we've heard over and over again, and yet perhaps our focus has been off. Perhaps we've been in the seat of David. Oh, go slay your giants. Whatever that might be, let me just say, your giants are far too big for your arms. Your giants are far too Hulk-like. 
for your puny muscles. You see, it's God that guides that small stone just to that precise spot in Goliath's forehead. He's used to walking, or he's used in the past walking laps around, so why, why can't he do a, a small stone? He's used loud shouts. He's divided a sea. Now, just a single stone. And this is the might and strength of our God. The enemies that seem too strong and unbeatable, the battle that seems unwinnable, when we feel defeated and overwhelmed and hopeless, he is the one who fights. He delivers and he prevails. The one who said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, writes Herbert Locker, may we never doubt his supremacy for to do so is dishonoring to him who reigns without rival to oust him. With such an omnipotent, omnipotent that is all powerful, God is our heavenly father, why should we charge our souls with care? Why fuss and fume, mope and despair and mistrust when things go wrong and trials come? Acting as if the God we profess to believe is no bigger than the needs, trials, and adversaries we fear. You see, this story is not at all about an underdog mustering up enough strength and courage to win the battle on his own. No, this story is about God who fights for his people and fights for his glory. Nor is this story intended to show that we can topple the giants we have in our life. If we put enough grit into it, if, the, if we overcome the odds that are stacked up against us, and we can do so on our own. No, this is a story that ultimately points forward to a greater champion. A greater one who stands in between. And by his grace and his mercy delivers his people when they can't deliver themselves. So here we have David at the very end of this scene standing on the body of this scale, scaly serpent-like giant, taking a sword, crushing his head. Have we heard that before in the story? I'd imagine, and again, as the story continues, it seems like Israel may have been putting some things together. There seems to be a lot of celebration about David at this point. Saul, he's killed a couple. David, his thousands. David has killed even Goliath. And yet, as the story continues, David is not the one to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. David is ultimately not the one who is the source of our rescue, the source of Israel's rescue. And in this story, we're, we're not David. No, we're more like the Israelites, aren't we? Weak, faithless, fearful, distrusting, overwhelmed, cowards. But who do we look to? Do we look to something here on earth? Someone here on earth to stand in between? To make a rescue for us? Do we try to do it on our own? No. The story, our family story, is not about key individuals that stand in the gap on their own and say, hey, I'll win it for you. Not kings, presidents, politicians. 
Not friends, family members, brothers and sisters. No, the good news in our family story is that there is one who is far greater than David. There is a greater shepherd king who ultimately stood between as our champion, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this is who this story points forward to, the one savior that our story is all about. He's the Messiah, the serpent crusher who fights the battle that's far too big for us to win on our own. You see, everything that takes place here in this valley of Elah, again, writes Josh, points to the Messiah the victory, and the victory God promised in that Garden of Eden. It was a vivid picture here of how the Messiah would crush the evil one and offer salvation to those who understand that there is a battle with sin that cannot be won on our own battle with judgment that we cannot escape. You see, Jesus is the one who takes our place, fighting for us so that we can share in his victory. This is the good news of the gospel that our family story is all about, that Jesus came to this earth, took on the flesh and bones that we live in daily. He took upon himself our filth and our grime, our sin and shame, dying on the cross in our place so that you and I might receive life eternal in the place of what we truly deserve, death forever. You see, he fought for us so that we might be delivered for his glory. And this is still good news for us today. Though thousands of years removed, we still live in the good of this unfolding family story. As the great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God proclaims, did we in our own strength confide? Oh, our striving, it would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name, from age to age the same. Oh, and he must win the battle. Amen. Oh, may we grow to know him more intimately, depend on him more humbly, and enjoy him more freely. For God, God alone fights for his people and delivers us for his glory.